start, many of you know this, every year I try to uh, tweak and, and get better at preaching. And one thing I always try to do is have very clear points to the sermon. Usually I'll do three points, I've done four or five points, I've done a two-point sermon. But the problem is, a lot of times when you, when you do that, if you're not careful, it can become distracting to the main point. And so one thing I've done, if you pay attention to the slides this morning, I've removed the, the titles of the points, because really the text should be what we're reading, what we're getting, not uh, Jeff's opinion. I, I don't want to bring that to the table. I don't think any pastor should do that. I want to preach God's word, not Jeff's theories. Okay, and I, I say that because I'm going to get into a theory this morning, uh, so you understand where I'm coming from on this. I think there's valid validity to that. What's happening in the scripture? This is another one of those texts that is very difficult for a lot of people because some really weird stuff kind of happens in it. Jesus doesn't heal this guy in a normal way, and there's no parallel passage to compare this to. Really, Mark is just kind of telling us this story, and it's almost like he just kind of goes off the rails at one point. So we got to ask, why does he do this? And we really, what I've learned throughout this series is that when you come along to one of those texts that are very difficult, and it seems like a lot of pastors don't like to preach on, what I'm finding is those are some of the most rich, most valuable, most beautiful stories that we should be diving into because there's something to that. So we're going to begin reading in verse 31. We're going to finish out the chapter of Mark, uh, Mark 7 this morning, and we'll dive into chapter 8 starting next week. But it begins, And again he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they pleaded with him to lay his hand on him. And Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven with a sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was removed. And he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he was ordering them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. And they were uttering, or they were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. That's a powerful passage. We don't talk about it very much, which is ironic because it involves a man who can't speak, right? He can't speak and he ends up getting told, Don't talk once he can. We can speak, and so often we don't. So there's one thing, if you, if, you, if you take nothing else away from this, the one point I do hope we drive home, is that if your life is changed by Christ, you cannot stop talking about Him. People say, well, my life was changed by Christ, I just don't want to talk about Him. Then He either didn't change your life, or you don't appreciate what He did nearly enough. This passage is fascinating. Not just because we witness a miracle or because Jesus models how to do ministry for us. Those things are all true and we'll unpack that. But the story itself, the healing of a deaf man, that should shock us. That should surprise us. It should leave its mark upon our minds and our hearts. Not just because ears were opened, but the fact that Christ does this and he does it so completely. It's such a thorough healing. Deafness, if you understand anything about it, when it's congenital, or if it occurs early in a person's life, around the ages of two and three, their, 
their speech is left with a severe impediment. A person will never talk right or talk with the correct enunciation and, and things of that. And you have to remember, in this era, there were no hearing aids, right? There wasn't even sign language. Sign language would not be invented until the year 1817, long after this takes place. In fact, this would be a time where it would be so miserable to be a deaf or mute person. In Israel, in this, in this era, a deaf person would be marked as someone who is insane because nobody could understand them. Nobody could uh, translate or comprehend what they were trying to communicate and they couldn't hear and understand them. That's not uncommon, by the way. Let's not be too hard on Israel. In that era, that happened to, in a lot of cultures. If you're familiar with Greek culture, for example, you know in Sparta, if a child was deaf or had any kind of infirmity or impurity in them, they'd just throw them off a cliff. Native American cultures, if there were some, that if, if a child was born deaf, they would have him slaughtered because they'd think he was possessed by a monster or was a monster itself, himself. Deafness would be a horrible existence in this era. More than being blind, because if you're blind, you can still hear things. You can still talk. You can still communicate. But in deafness and in muteness, you're a prisoner within your own body. You're a prisoner within your own mind. You don't know what's going on and you can't express your fear. You're just alone with it. The fact that Christ heals this man is just the tip of the iceberg of this story. And some observation, you may, be, you may be picked up on it in my reading. I want you to focus on the, the way this story plays out. The wording of this story is very important, especially this little word, and, that begins each verse. It's the Greek word, kai. Very, we, would, we would brush that off as a very insignificant fact, but there's something to that, and I want to get into that as we go this morning. Because you know, I've, I've said this before, Mark, when he writes the gospel, he does it with a cadence. He does it at a fast pace. And today we're going to see what, what really, when, we, when we're able to see it, when it's so obvious to us, we, we'd be hard-pressed to miss this. But it's, it's a beautiful thing that happens within this passage. And the overall message of the passage is simply this. If Christ truly is Lord of our lives, we will tell everyone we can about him. We will never be able to stop talking about him. And there are stages within our text that we see how people come to Christ and how he changes. They come and they appeal and then they're affected and then they anticipate his return. And we see that all play out throughout this text. And the first thing we see is this crowd coming to Jesus and they they make an appeal. They come to Jesus for a reason. We read in verse 31, and again he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of the Decapolis. Now this might be familiar to you. If you've been here most Sundays as we've journeyed through this narrative of Mark, the Decapolis is familiar territory. We've been here before. Jesus has been here before. But many commentators, they like to point out the way he gets to that point. That he's very careful to stay away from the region that's ruled by Herod Antipas. Herod, of course, is a very insecure leader. He rules the southern part of Israel, Jerusalem, Judea, that region. The area Jesus is now traveling through is through the the area governed by the Roman Tetrarch, Philip. Philip is not nearly as insecure. He's not going to be intimidated by a a quote-unquote Jewish king. He's not going to feel so insecure about it. 
So Jesus, it seems to be, is avoiding Herod and going where he might be a little more welcome. But we also have to keep in mind, this is Gentile territory. This is not Jewish territory. Now, some think that this is going to last about eight months of Jesus' ministry. And if you remember last week, Jesus is entering that last year of his ministry. And so a vast majority of that, he's spending in Gentile areas. So we're going to we're going to see why he does that. And much of what he does at this time, by the way, it's unrecorded. We don't know what he does during this almost three-fourths of the year, his last year on earth, right? Of his earthly ministry. But John kind of gives us a hint about that in, in his gospel. In John's gospel, it ends by saying, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written one after the other, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. He's likely referring to this time of Jesus' life. But mostly he's, he's around the Gentiles and he's mostly with his disciples. He's modeling for the disciples, preparing them for this crucifixion, resurrection, and their ministry that will follow. He's got them alone. They're not going to be bogged down by the Pharisees. They're not going to be chased down by the scribes. They're free to go and do as they want in the Gentile territory. And he's traveling deeper there. And it he gets to the Decapolis, and the Decapolis, if you remember, that's a fancy word for the ten cities. There were ten cities all grouped together, and we saw them back in chapter 5. And if you remember that story, he had a pretty big encounter with somebody, the Gerasene demoniac, who was possessed by a legion of demons. And those demons went, ended up being, being cast into a herd of pigs. And the people of that region did not want Jesus there, because he cost them their bacon market, Right? And so he had to leave by ship, and that formerly demon-possessed man begged Jesus to go with him. But Jesus doesn't let him. In fact, in Mark 5, 19, it says, But he said to him, Go to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to preach in the Decapolis. What great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was marveling. Now, as we've traveled through, we find ourselves back in the same region. And this man who'd been dominated by demons has been a very effective evangelist, a very effective missionary. The people have heard about Jesus of Nazareth and they know about his miracles. In fact, last week, the Seraphonician mother, it's very likely she knew that Jesus had healed this man of a, of a legion of demons. So when she goes to him, she goes in faith knowing if Jesus can heal a man of a legion of demons, it's nothing for him to heal my daughter of just one. But now Jesus is traveling through Sidon and to the Sea of Galilee and, and into this area. And some, some people like to speculate. I, I don't think he was just talking about the weather as he goes through these areas. I believe he was teaching and preaching and performing other miracles like John says. Now some other commentators like, like to point out that Jesus did not have to go this far north to avoid Herod. He was not, he, and avoid the Pharisees. He didn't have to go the direction he does. And so they, they conclude that Mark, as he's writing this, Mark just doesn't know his geography very well. And I don't think that's fair to Mark. In fact, I think what we're actually getting here is a piece of Mark's history. And this is, this is the theory that I, I had asked you to consider this morning because I, I, I believe this. I think Mark is pulling back the curtain and he's telling us a little bit of his own story here. He's saying, actually, Jesus is in this region, and this is where my family joined up. This is where I became a disciple of Christ. 
Because when there's no reason for the writer to have it, we have to ask what's the reason for it being there. And Mark will, at some point later in the Gospel of Mark, have one of those directors making a cameo in their movie type of moments. And if you're familiar with it, it's in Mark 14, verses 51 and 52. We believe the young man that is being described is Mark himself. And I think this too is where Mark is saying, this is where my family became Christians. This is where we joined in. Now Mark's a Jewish person, but that doesn't mean he's not living in Gentile territory. In fact, by Acts chapter 12, we know Mark's mother, Mary, lives in Jerusalem. So it's not that Mark doesn't know his geography. It's that he's very subtly saying, and this is where I became a disciple. Remember, he's the only one that mentions it. Why would he mention it unless it was something personal to him? Unless he had a personal reason to express it. And he he has other reasons as well. Mark is also the one who's going to point out that Jesus spends more time amongst the Gentiles than any other gospel writer. But Mark would have been a young man at this time. He would have been a, a, a man likely in his teenager, teenage years, late teenage years. And if they joined up, that would still put him around this timetable. In fact, by the time we get to the book of Acts, Mark is still a very immature person. He's so immature, in fact, Barnabas and Paul argue over him so intensely, they split directions. They go in opposite directions. It's all over Mark because Paul says basically, no, I don't want to take him with us. He's lazy and he doesn't like to work. And last time he left us hanging. Last time he left us stranded. That's Acts 15.38 in the Jeff Williams translation available at our church's bookstore. We don't have a bookstore. They get into such heated discussion, they split up. And Barnabas says, you know what, I'll, fine, I'll take, I'll take Mark. And he goes to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas, and he goes to Syria and Cilicia. And by the way, Cyprus, church tradition tells us, that's where Barnabas dies, a martyr's death. And it's believed that that is a turning point in Mark's life. That that's, that's what happens. And Mark, Mark matures very quickly through that process. Paul will write later, eventually, he will come around on Mark and he'll say to Timothy in his last letter, he'll say, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. That's 2 Timothy 4.11. Mark might have been in this crowd that brought this deaf man to Jesus. It may have been a relative of Mark's. It may have been a friend. But we know that, that there was a crowd that brought this man to Jesus. It says, and they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they pleaded with him, to lay his hand on him. The crowd, and again, maybe Mark wasn't a part of it. Maybe that was just a fun theory or a fun rabbit trail. But they come to Jesus and they begin to plead with him. They appeal to him. That's the Greek word parakalosin. And some of you may be familiar with the Greek word paraklete or parakaleo, which means comfort or urge. And here it means pleading, appealing. In, in this tense, that's what it means. Last week, we saw a woman come to Jesus and appeal and plead on behalf of her daughter, to, that, a, that a demon be removed. This time a whole group of people brings their friend who's deaf and cannot speak well, they bring him to Jesus. In fact, he actually, the word he uses means speaks with difficulty. In the early 1900s, the, the Scottish pastor, James Moffat, he translated the whole Bible, and in this passage he said, this deaf man who stammered, as if he had a stuttering problem. But that's Mark's word. We'll, we'll get to that. Apparently, at least of all, he had a, a limited way of communicating. He didn't fully understand what was going on. And now he's sitting in front of this Jewish man that he doesn't know, and all eyes are on the both of them. Think about this for a moment. When you read this passage, 
Think about the perspective. I'm not saying put yourself in the deaf man's position, but think about the perspective he must have had. He likely felt very self-conscious. He was probably very aware of his limited abilities, probably curious, afraid, very lonely. Again, Mark is the only one who mentions this story. We're not completely told why. Matthew's account is is slightly parallel. Matthew, he only dedicates a few verses to it. It says, In departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there, and large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. This is Matthew 15, 29-31. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. But Mark Mark zeroes in with, with sniper precision on this one story, and he says there's, there's something else you got to see. There's more to it than just that. And maybe he does it, like I said, maybe he does this because he's a part of that crowd. Or maybe he just really wants the, under, the, the reader to understand Jesus is not just exclusively for the Jewish people, but for everybody. Again, Mark Mark will be the one who records more miracles taking place amongst the Gentiles than any other gospel writer. And he makes this very clear. The hope, salvation, the healings that Jesus makes available to us is available to all who believe, not just, not just the Jewish person. Paul writes, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It was the belief of the early church that God, was, God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. That's 1 Timothy 2.4. Why we don't believe in a limited atonement like our Calvinist brothers. We believe that salvation is available to everyone, to all men, all women, lest we forget last week. It doesn't matter if you're a guy, a girl, Jew, Gentile, deaf, blind, sick, healthy, fat, hairy, or bald, or both. All men, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's true. We affirm that. We hold to that. So these Gentiles, they've heard about Jesus and what he can do, and they bring this deaf Gentile to him. At least we assume he's a Gentile. And they don't even ask him to heal him. Do you notice that? They go to him and they say, could you just... Not put your hands, plural. Could you just put your hand on him? Jesus could heal this man if he just grazed the edge of his cloak or a robe. Jesus could just speak a word and heal this man. Instead, they say, could you just put your hand on him? They ask him very specifically to do that. This deaf man who cannot speak, his existence has been miserable. Had to have been a miserable life. And yet there's something about him that motivates the crowd to bring, them, bring him to Jesus. And so they appeal and they say, could you just touch this man? This is what Jesus does. He often heals with a touch. But there's a special meaning here. The crowd, they, they bring this man to Jesus. They're not asking him to physically heal him necessarily, but just to show affection. Well, Jesus, will you, will you even show this man love? That's what they're asking. And when you put your hand on him, will you, will you just be tender even to this man? That's what they're saying. 
And this is the beauty of Jesus Christ. He can heal with a word. He can heal with the edge of his robe, but yet he chooses to touch us. And in fact, many times when we're praying for someone, what do we pray? Lord, touch them. Lord, will you touch their life? When we've shared the gospel with someone over and over and we spend countless nights praying in tears for their salvation, ultimately, what do we end up asking? Lord, will you just touch them? And when he does, when he touches a life, they can no longer be quiet about him. We have to talk about it because it's a life that's been affected by Christ. Verse 33, Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue. It is not hard to imagine the anxiety this man must be feeling at this point. Right? He's surrounded by a crowd. He's been put in front of everyone like he's some kind of lab rat. Let's just see what happens. Right? Or he's some kind of... Uh, sideshow loony and we're just going to put him up there that's how he must be perceiving this okay let's put the town freak in front of this guy see what happens now likely he'd been mistreated in the past he'd been pranked he'd been abused and so he probably doesn't expect much what's jesus do he takes him and they get alone he gets alone with this man Often when people have made their appeal to Jesus, it's in their quiet, most intimate moments alone with him, they truly see the Lord begin to work. Daniel alone with the lions. Elijah alone on the mountain. David alone with his sheep. Gideon alone as he threshes wheat in a wine press. Joshua alone in the tent after Moses leaves. Moses alone with the burning bush. Joseph alone in a dry well. Jacob alone as he runs from Esau, Abraham alone as he sits by the oaks of Mamre, and most of all, Noah alone in his righteousness, though he's surrounded by many people. It's not a bad thing to get alone with God. It's there we're most affected by him. And this man, Jesus takes him, likely puts his arm around him and leads him away, and things get weird. Right? What? Jesus does. What? He, he, that's what I, when I, when I first read this story, I was about 11 years old. My dad had bought me an NIV Bible. Many of you have seen this Bible, I'm sure. It's got a denim cover. I no longer own one, but it was super popular. Every guy in the 90s had this Bible. It had little comic book inserts inside it, and it was real easy to read. And I read this story and I went, gross. What? What just happened? I'm going to keep reading. I'm not going to pay attention to this. And, I, and that's what most people do. And when they do, they miss out on a beautiful, fascinating story. Remember, sign language has not been invented yet. This is, there's no way of, of putting your hands together. I don't know sign language, and I'm not going to try lest I say something offensive. But Jesus does something with his hands. He, he takes his fingers and puts them inside his ears. Now, if he grabs this man by the ear, he might think he's in trouble or in danger, right? Because that's what your mom does when you're doing something bad. See, he puts his fingers inside the man's ears because that's where the healing needs to take place anyway. And then he he draws attention to his own mouth as he spits. I'm not going to spit because we have nice carpet. He spits. 
your mouth, okay, your mouth. And then this man's probably, I don't blame him, standing there with his mouth wide open. And Jesus reaches over and touches his tongue. You know, this guy doesn't say, "Uh, Jesus, did you sanitize your hands before you did that? Because that would be going through my mind. Get your finger out my mouth, Jesus. He He doesn't do anything. He just stands there. He gets it. He understands Jesus has spoken to him in the only way this man will understand. He doesn't recoil. He doesn't run away in fear. It's the compassion of Christ that keeps him there. When Jesus is approached by a leper, he is moved to compassion. It's one of the beautiful things. Like I said, Jesus not only touches us, but he loves us as he touches us. He has mercy on us as he touches us. And he wants this man to experience touch. So the man understands him, and the message that he likely received was, it's going to be okay. I'm with you. I'm here for you. True compassion does not just talk, it touches. True ministry does not just say a blessing, it blesses. And that's what Jesus models for us here. He's modeling, not just for us, but even for the 12 men who followed him through this region, he is modeling, this is how we do ministry. You must touch a person's life if it's going to be affected by it, by the message. People don't, care about what you preach to them if you're not willing to do something behind it. Why James writes, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? It's not ministry. It's not what Christ is modeling for us here. He touches and, verse 34, and looking up to heaven with a sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And when Mark tells us that Jesus looks up into the heavens, we understand what's happening there. Jesus is praying. This is how Jesus prayed. He often would look up to the Father. He would look up to the heavens. That's, that's what he does when he breaks bread. That's what he does in the garden. It's, it's how he prays. He looks up to heaven. And Jesus was in constant communication with the Father. He, like the Apostle Paul told us, he prayed without ceasing. It's a good reminder that for those of us who get busy, who get preoccupied with life, even in the middle of ministry, Jesus, in the middle of healing this man, stops to pray. Too often, as Christians, we can become so preoccupied with our work, so preoccupied with our family, with life, meetings, the kids, grandkids. As a pastor, I can tell you that sometimes we get so into even being in the ministry, we forget to pray. We forget to take time to speak to God and let him speak to us. And so I hope you hear me on this because I'm not just preaching to you, but to myself as I say this. Your service to the Lord is not nearly as important as your communion with and your love for the Lord. Leonard Ravenhill said it this way, No man is greater than his prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is playing. The people who are not praying are straying. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, few prayers. Many singers, few clingers, lots of pastors, few wrestlers, many fears, few tears, much fashion, little passion, many many interferers, few intercessors, many writers, but few fighters. Failing here, we fail everywhere. 
Christ made time to pray even in the middle of a miracle. It wasn't a long prayer. It doesn't even have any words. Some of the most powerful prayers don't. But we're to understand this moment of communication between the Son and the Father. And Christ lets out this loud sigh. And we read that and we think it's, <sighs> which we would, if we were to see that, we might get the impression Jesus is like, oh, another miracle, another guy I got to heal. That's not at all what's happened here. In fact, it's the Greek word estenazin. It means he groaned inwardly. It's a groan of compassion and mercy. It's a deep feeling of empathy he holds for this man. In this moment, Jesus allowed himself to, to show compassion and mercy to a man who lived in a region where mercy was in short supply and he'd likely seen even less. Do we act with compassion when we minister? Do we seek to relate to those who are hard to love or those who have not been shown much love? Do we weep over the loss? Do we, do we have sorrow for those who have been distorted by sin? Does the nightly news drive us to prayer on our knees? Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Yet how often do we groan with compassion or empathy? How often do we minister to those who, do, who don't even deserve mercy or those who've never shown mercy themselves or received much themselves? Good question we should ask ourselves. But then Jesus does something that only Jesus does. He speaks to the blind man, I said blind man, the mute man's ears, the deaf man's ears. And, and his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was removed and he began speaking plainly. You understand what just took place? What happened in that text? His ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was removed. The Greek word there is desmos, the chain on his tongue was removed. That's what desmos is. It's actually the Greek word often used for the chains of a prisoner. This man was set free. This man is unbound. He has broken the chains that have held this man captive within his own mind for years. And now he speaks, and he speaks perfectly. He speaks plainly. That's a miracle. That's huge. People who've been given uh, been the, the first opportunity to hear, they've, they've been given a hearing aid for the first time later in life, they still have a speech impediment. They still have to understand and grasp what they're hearing. Not this man. He begins to hear and speak as, as if it's normal for him. He speaks perfectly. This man doesn't go to a speech therapy class. He doesn't learn vocabulary words. He doesn't learn how to speak New Testament Greek. He just begins talking. He couldn't hear, then he could. He couldn't talk, and now he talks plainly. That's the life that's affected by Christ. Because we were prisoners in our own minds. We didn't realize it. We were slaves chained to sin. Paul tells us, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has yet has set you free from the law of sin and death. The psalmist says, they cried out to Yahweh in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. He broke their chains. It is unfair as we do ministry, as we share the gospel with people, to tell them they must be saved and not tell them what they need to be saved from. It's unloving. 
to do such a thing. We're not just saved from death and hell. We're saved from the very sin that drives us there. And he wants to break the chain. And when we understand that, when our lives are affected by Christ, then we can anticipate his return. And that's what this crowd, in a sense, this is what what Mark draws our eyes towards. Verse 36, and he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he was ordering them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. Now, can you imagine just being that man in this moment? Are you kidding me, Jesus? I couldn't talk for years, and now you're telling me to shut up? You're telling me I can't tell anybody? I want to tell everybody. I can't say anything. That's what Jesus tells him to do. Don't tell anybody what's happened. Don't speak of it. We've seen this before. Jesus tells the demons, don't tell anybody who I am. He tells the leper, don't go to anybody, just go to the priest. Don't tell anyone. He tells demons again in Mark 3, don't tell anybody who he is. Mark 5, 43, he says to Jairus, he says, don't tell anybody I raised your daughter from the dead. Later in in chapter 8, we'll see Jesus heals a blind man. He says, don't even go into town. Go home. Don't tell anybody. Only one time. Only one time so far, Jesus has told anyone to go and talk about him. And it was in this same town. He tells the demoniac, he says, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to preach in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was marveling. We can explain that. We can understand that, right? Because that story, that man was a type of John the Baptist paving the way for Jesus to come back to the region. That makes sense. But it's a real head-scratcher, Jesus. You just healed this guy who couldn't talk right. Now he can speak plainly. Who better to be your evangelist and go and tell people? And you're telling them to be quiet. Why? Because the message that this man would be telling is you've got to hear about Jesus. If you've got a problem, he'll fix it. If you need a healing, he's there. If you want your life fixed, but that's only part of the story. The same thing all the TV preachers promise. Go to Jesus, you'll get your life right. That's only part of it. This man's story is missing two things, the death and the resurrection. He's saying the story's not complete yet, guys. Slow the spread. Slow it down. Don't tell everyone because it's not over. Wait till you get the full story. Wait till you hear the best part. If for nothing else, he wants the disciples to understand it's not over yet. This isn't the only thing I came to do. This isn't the only reason I'm here. I'm not a get out of jail free card for all all your ailments. I'm a get out of hell free at my cost, on the cross. And that's the more important part of the story. He says, don't tell people. What happens? They tell everybody anyway. They can't stop talking about him. Someone once told me there's psychology to that. That when you tell someone don't do something, they want to do it all the more. And that's Jesus knew that. That's why he was doing it. I don't agree with that. Because when you go and, and tell people about Jesus in this era, you're going to get ridiculed. You're going to get cast out of the synagogue. You're going to be, be martyred, possibly. No, this would be like my dad telling me, I don't want you to mow the yard tomorrow. And me going, I'll show you, old man. I'm going to mow everybody's yard. Wouldn't have happened. Okay. 
my dad is listening to this message, he'd be happy to tell you, yeah, Jeffrey would not do that. Let me tell you, it's not what Jesus is doing. He wants them to have the whole story because he wants them to have the best part that comes after this. Then we come to the last passage. And they were utterly astonished, saying, he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And this is the best part of this story. Because Mark is going to connect some dots for us. They were utterly astonished. The Greek word is huperparesos exaplasanto. It literally would be translated super abundantly, above all measures, struck out of their wits. You know what we'd say today? They had no words. They brought a deaf man who couldn't speak to Jesus, and now they can't say anything. They're so shocked. And yet they still can't stop talking about him. And what do they say about him? Literally, it would be everything he has done, he has done perfectly. They acknowledge that Jesus does not heal halfway. He does not do a temporary miracle. His miracles stick. Why? He tells people to go to the priest, go get it confirmed, show that they're done, show they're made perfect, show their complete miracles. And he does heal with just a word, be healed, be open, be cleansed, or with a touch. But the idea Mark is again trying to convey to to us and to his readers, very subtly he's drawing our attention back to Genesis. He does all things well. When God creates in Genesis, what does he speak about his creation? He saw that it was good. It was done perfect. And that's the same type of wording that they're using here. You understand, when Jesus heals the blind man, he's creating with his words new synapses inside that eyeball, new nerve endings that are going to relay images to the brain to be able to process these things. He's creating in that instance. When he heals the leper, he's taking dead skin cells and bringing them to life and creating new tissue underneath that epidermis. And and he's bringing forth life. When he heals the lame and he tells them to pick up their mats and walk, he's creating new cartilage within the joints. He's creating new bones where some bones were broken and shattered or or muscles were were, were atrophied. They're, They're strong and they can get up and not only can they walk under their own strength, they can carry their mat with them. When he heals the deaf man who couldn't talk, he gives him new eardrums and new relays within his skull that will feed sounds into his brain and he'll not only be able to process it and understand it, He's going to be able to do it so well that he can now speak plainly with the new tongue that Christ has put in his mouth. Mark is shouting to us, he is God. He is the Christ. He is the only one with the power to make a broken world right. And he's going to point to the cross, believe it or not, even in this passage. And then he rose again, and that because he's Rose again, he's going to come back and reign supreme. And to prove that, we go further into the verse. We dig a little deeper. As Mark gives us this glimmer of the future, a glimmer of hope, when Christ will set all things in order, when he will heal completely, when he'll totally heal for eternity. In fact, Mark is going to point both to, or to Isaiah twice in Revelation as he reminds us of God's promise that someday he will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things will have passed away. 
How does he do that? Why would Mark do that? Well, for one, to give us hope. But how he does it is tricky and it's brilliant. And I love it because it's digging into God's word. His wording as he records the the second thing that the crowd says, he makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. That's the crowd's words. This man was completely mute according to the crowd. But that's not the word that Mark uses back in verse 32. He says the man spoke with difficulty. And before I go any further, I need to point out Mark does not quote the Old Testament often because his readers would likely not be familiar with the Hebrew text. If anything, they would know the Greek Septuagint. And I pointed this out a few weeks ago that when you read in your Old Testament a Bible verse that Mark or one of the New Testament writers are quoting, oftentimes you might read a verse in, in your Old Testament and what you're getting is Hebrew to English, nothing in between. But instead, what the New Testament writers were doing was reading a Hebrew to Greek, to their modern Greek, now to English. So it passes through different filters. It's like when I said earlier, uh, a few weeks ago, Isaiah 29, 13, Mark quotes this passage. And when you go back in your Old Testament, it sounds different, but the message is still the same. Okay, there's no contradiction there, but we have to understand that what the writer is, is forced to do. And here in our text, Mark gets it through to us. The crowd speaks of how Jesus made the mute man to speak. But Mark uses a different word to describe his ability for speech. And you may catch it. The crowd uses a noun. It's the word alelus. It's a very common word. This is the crowd's word. It's very common. You would have heard it often to describe someone who didn't have the ability to speak. But back in verse 32, Mark uses a different word. Mark's word that he chooses to use to describe this man's inability to speak is magalelon, and it's rare. In fact, in all the New Testament, it only appears once, and we've read it today. It's a very rare word. In fact, in the Greek Septuagint, it only appears once. And Mark uses it as he's quoting Isaiah 35 right here in our text. And if you're not familiar with the book of Isaiah, it's a, it's a long book to read, but it's powerful. The first half is all about God's wrath and God's judgment. But the second half is all about salvation. Not just salvation for the Jewish people, but for the whole world through this suffering servant that God promises, this Messiah character that he reveals to us in Isaiah 53. But what Mark is quoting is Isaiah 35, because Isaiah 35 is the transitional chapter within the whole book. The first part brings judgment to Edom, Egypt, Tyre, Israel, Jerusalem. But the second part, that's salvation for all. And it reads, Say to those with an anxious heart, this is the beginning in verse 4, Say to those with an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the magalelon, the mute, will shout for joy. When salvation comes, when the Messiah comes, and I'm not talking about the first time he comes, 
Mark's not talking about the first time he comes. Isaiah's not talking about the first time he comes. But when he comes in that millennial kingdom, when he comes for that last time, for the eternal time, for the eternal time he comes and he's going to still those anxious hearts. And he's going to wipe every tear from their eye. And the blind will see, the lame will run, the deaf will hear, and the mute will shout for joy. So I say to you today, those with anxious hearts, hold on. Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, but he's also coming to set things right. The believer anticipates Christ. And we will not, we cannot, we shall not stop talking about him until he returns. I'm going to move to close this in just a minute, but there's one last thing we have to get. One last thing. It's a very important word that we see throughout this passage. The Greek word, akai. We read it as and. And if you don't notice this about Mark yet, he, he, he writes with a cadence. He writes with a rhythm. And only here so far have we seen this. In the story of a deaf man, we hear and, 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 and. It's a drumbeat. It's a cadence. It's a rhythm. Well, that's kind of ironic because deaf people don't hear music. Ah, you know when Beethoven was going deaf, he went home that day, turned out, he found out he wasn't going to be able to hear anymore. He went home, he cut the legs off his pianos, sat on the floor and began to write more symphonies. You know why? Because he can feel that. He can feel it. He can feel the rhythm. He can feel the cadence. And here Mark is saying, can you feel the rhythm? Can you, can you hear the drumbeat? This message is that God does not forsake a deaf person. He doesn't doesn't judge based on your your disabilities or what you look like or what you smell like. He loves all. And he's playing the the music of creation. The heartbeat of God is on display in this passage. And Jesus heals this man. And this message is for us. It, It doesn't matter if you're physically deaf or spiritually deaf. There is a song playing. There is a drumbeat calling out to you the heart of God, saying the Holy Spirit is singing to you through the Holy Scriptures. And He's saying, come to Christ, who makes all things new. And He died on a cross that you might be made whole. And the things we pass by as we read Scripture are so much greater than if we just spent a lifetime studying one verse of the Word of God. And if we miss this, we miss all that matters. That He is the God who heals. He is the God who restores. And He's crying out to us with a cadence, with a rhythm this morning. And so often, the drummer will use two sticks. And it's upon two sticks my Savior died. For my sin. For your sin. That all, not just the Jewish person exclusively, but for all people to come to Christ. All people to come into a right standing with the Father. He sent His Son that we may believe and have eternal life. How can we not talk about Jesus? Like I said, I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. And we're not going to do an altar call today. We're going to do something vastly different. Instead, I want to challenge the church today to do one thing. As you leave, as you go home, as you're in the car on, on your drive, as you're at Pizza Ranch, as you're sitting around the dinner table this afternoon, do one thing. Talk about Jesus. Make it a point 
to talk about the cross, to, to talk about what he's done in your life, talk about the resurrection, share your testimony. Maybe you run into a stranger and for the first time you, you open up and you begin to just talk about church, talk about what God did in your life today. If you've not submitted your life to Christ, maybe you're here, maybe you're watching, grab someone and say, can you just tell me about Jesus? Can you just talk to me about it? Can you pray with me about it? Each Sunday as I preach, I try very hard to point us to the gospel of Christ. I hope I've done that today. But the challenge to the congregation is simply, you go share the gospel with someone else today. Take what you've received, go forward and share it. Because the sad truth about this passage is this. Many people will read it and they'll move on. Many people will hear this message and move on. But this mute could finally speak. And he was told he couldn't talk. You have the ability to speak. Tell everybody. A true believer in Christ cannot keep quiet. We have to talk about him. So go today and tell people. Father God, as we dismiss this morning, I pray, Lord, for those who are maybe they would be really getting out of their comfort zone. Maybe they really do feel shy or, or in, incapable. I pray for courage. I pray for the Holy Spirit to spur them on, to, to give them a fire and a zeal for evangelism today. For those who maybe they've, they've talked and talked until they're blue in the face, and they're saying, maybe I, I should stop talking for a while. No, they shouldn't always one more conversation about Jesus. Let that be our driving force in evangelism. One more conversation about Jesus. As we go through town on a, on a parade float, we're passing out water bottles, I pray for one more conversation about Jesus. As we go door to door, as we do evangelism within this town, I pray for one more conversation about Jesus. Holy Spirit, you push us Give us opportunity that we might plant seed and that it take root, Father. We ask this as we go today in Jesus' name, amen.